Revelation 8, 6 through 13. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets were prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water, because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. We're uh, in Revelation chapter 8, this mystifying chunk of scripture. Uh, But before we get into the text, uh, I want us to consider a question this morning, this afternoon, sorry, (laughs) this afternoon. On the one hand, like how would you describe God's perfect love for his people? When you think about the God of the Bible, and, and how it is that you would describe, thanks, Ray, the, w- the way that you would describe or prove that he loves his people, what would you say? How would you describe that? I think on the one hand, we, we, most of us would we'd make a beeline towards the cross, right? Uh, and, and we should do that. Like, that's the clearest display that we have of God's perfect love. We think of the cross and how his love is displayed by the sacrificial love of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the Son died for us on the cross. It's at the cross that we find this, this, this irrefutable expression of God's love for rebellious sinners like me and like you. I think attached to that, maybe coming from another angle, another outworking of his perfect love that that maybe we don't always think of is how we see God's love for his people by the way that he comes against those who might oppose his people. See, we also see God's love for his own people by the way that he comes against and opposes uh, his own people, those who might threaten his people, who would mock his people, those who would persecute his people. Man, I'm telling you right now, like one of the things that really gets my blood boiling is if you're going to threaten or endanger my wife. Right, like some of you guys know this about me. Like just the, the other day, she went to uh, the grocery store, just the local market at around like 11 p.m. Uh, you know, middle ranch of Santa Margarita, pretty safe place, right? Uh, we know like a lot of the employees and cashiers at this grocery store. And, and, and so, you know, it's just, she felt really, really safe going to the store. And, and, uh, but then she comes to the checkout station 
And then this like group of guys in a baggy clothes, uh, like they just start up c- coming up to her. Uh, one of them's on one side of her, and a couple start creeping up on the other side of her, and and they're like covered in tattoos, which by the way is how you know they can't be trusted, right? If you see a guy covered in tattoos, you know he can't be trusted. Um, if you're like one of those people that only listens to the podcast, like you, you, like you don't live local, that's, that's funny because I'm actually covered in tattoos. So just, just for the, the, the recording. <laughs> but they're like making, one of them starts making comments about her appearance and they're like snickering and talking to each other. Uh, and at this point, of course, you know, Alyssa would normally call me, but her phone was dead at the time. And so she like, is all flustered. She's like looking for an employee, uh, trying to see if she, she can find one that she recognizes, maybe ask them to like walk her out to her car. Um, but she finishes checking out and, and she, she sees that those guys have kind of like dispersed, right? And so she like goes out to, to exit. She looks around to see if they're like waiting outside. She doesn't see them around. And so she, she just books it to our van. Uh, and uh, as she she books it to the van and gets in, she's like looking around, making sure no one's following her. She gets inside the van and and she finally sees the guys. They're on these scooters outside of pavilions and they and they just like scoot away. I don't know, is that the verb for scooter? Like they scoot away, right? And so she drives home, and then she she gets through the door and she tells me the whole story. And as she's telling me, I'm like ticked, right? I'm like ticked that they put her in that position that they made her feel uncomfortable. I'm ticked that they, they got away. And so I'm like asking Alyssa, like, hey, what were they wearing, right? Like, which way did they scooter, right? Uh, I'm, I'm ready to jump in our car and, and try and find them and like give them a talking to, like, hey, like you don't talk about it to a woman like that, you know? Like I'm like, wanna find these guys. And like, yeah, there's five of them and one of me, but they have scooters. I have a minivan and a really good insurance policy. So I'm like feeling pretty good about that. Now, what's my point of sharing this story? Is that my love for my wife isn't just about whatever draws me to her. It's not just about the ways that I love to just love on her and serve her and do things for her and sacrifice for her. It's also about my being willing to protect her to defend her dignity, to avenge her. You see, love means something more than when you find out that you're that somebody who loves somebody. Like that love means something more when they're willing to defend that person from harm and opposition. Like if I'm not willing to do that for my wife, that, that says something about the nature of my love for her. But if I am, then that says something more, right? You see, one of the key ways that God's holy love is put on display is by the way that his judgments fall upon those who would oppose his people. Have you ever thought to describe God's love in those terms? Well, that's what we find in our text in Revelation chapter 8. Our passage, he begins to describe the ways that, that God judges our enemies, the ways that he defends our dignity on the stage of history. And do you, do you, do you know why this should matter to us? 
is because many times we get rejected because of our allegiance to Jesus. Many times we get rejected for uh, aligning ourselves with ultimate goodness, ultimate truth, ultimate beauty and justice, namely our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been like mocked for your faith? Maybe looked down on because of what you believe. Have you ever been treated differently because of the way that you're seeking to to yield your life to the goodness and truth and beauty of the gospel? That's the situation that the first Christians were in when they received this letter from the Apostle John. Remember, the book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter that was written by John to a bunch of churches spread throughout Asia Minor, ancient Near East. And this basic Bible study principle that we keep returning to again and again in this series is that if we want to understand the words of these pages of scripture and what they mean for us today, then we need to first ask, what did these words mean to its original audience back then? Right? If we want to begin to understand what this passage means for us today, we need to go through doing the work of figuring out what it meant for them back then. And so you need to know that churches that received this letter were persecuted churches. They were persecuted Christians, and they were receiving this letter at a time where they were being increasingly targeted by the Roman government, who saw the gospel as a threat to their way of doing things. And so Christians were given fewer opportunities and fewer, uh, lesser influence in, in the culture. They were, they were sometimes mocked, even by people uh, who, who had nothing to do with the Roman government. Like the, the, the historic Jews at the time who uh, were also kind of like uh, the underdogs, but because the Roman government were kind of hating on the Christians, uh, there, were, there were different uh, uh, like crews of Jewish like synagogues and gatherings where they would belittle and, 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 and criticize and persecute uh, Christians as as a way to sort of get in with the Romans. Sometimes this led to Christians being beaten, tortured, imprisoned, martyred. You see, for the early Christians, following Jesus, getting baptized publicly was a risk. It was truly a call to take up your cross. You didn't just become a social outcast if you were a Christian in the first century. No, you could possibly be walking the plank to your own death by your allegiance to Christ. And so these Christians would be asking questions like, man, where's God in all this? Has he abandoned us? Has he forgotten us? Has he grown tired of us? Is Rome too big for him? Man, have you you ever felt that way? Where you ask questions like that? Maybe not to that degree, but 
Maybe if you've like been, ever been ridiculed by a teacher or a professor, if you've been mocked by a neighbor or a coworker, if you've been sneered at by family, telling you you should keep your, 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 your faith to yourself, right? It should be a private matter, not something that you put on display. And I see our passage in Revelation 8 gives clarity and understanding for those of us who ask these kinds of heartfelt questions. And so here's the big idea that I think will be comforting for us out of this text. It's that God's judgment is near. His judgment is near, but so is his mercy. God's judgment is near, and so is his mercy. Here's our first point I want you to see in our text. First, we're going to consider the significance of the cycle of seven. The significance of the cycle of seven. Now look at verse six. Verse 6 of Revelation 8 says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. All right, now let's just kind of zoom out for a little bit and, and talk about this like seven, seven, like this repeating seven cycle that we find ourselves in the middle of. All right? Like we find ourselves walking through this stretch of scripture that includes these repeated cycles of this number seven, right? Beginning with chapter six, we saw seven seals that were protecting the contents of God's scroll. The contents of the scroll was God's plan for history, how he was going to resolve all that was broken, all that was uh, tainted by sin how he was going to vanquish all evil, bring judgment to, to all, all sin and evil. And so the contents of the scroll was covered by, uh, sealed by uh, these seven different seals. And then one by one, those seven seals are broken, revealing God's plan to protect his people and bring hope to the world. And the seventh seal begins the sounding of the seven trumpets, which is where we find ourselves now in Revelation 8. One by one, these seven trumpets are going to be uh, blasted, sounded out. And with each trumpet comes a different work of judgment against the enemies of God and his people. And at the end of these seven trumpets, we're going to see seven bowls of wrath. Maybe you've heard that term before, the seven bowls of wrath in, in Revelation. And so you see this like repeating cycle of seven. Now, if you pay attention as we, we talk about the trumpets, you'll notice some similarities between the trumpets and the seals that we looked at before. All right? Both of them, here, here are some of the similarities, both categories, the, the seals and the trumpets, both mention suffering and turmoil. Both mention judgments. Both have this sort of rhythm of four clumps together and then three leading to the final judgment and victory of the church, right? Like with the seals, you had the four horsemen that were clumped together. Remember that? And, and right now, you're going to see four trumpets that are clumped together. And both of them, the seals and the trumpets, show what happens to unbelievers who refuse to repent. And so there are clear parallels that we're going to see between where we've been before with the seven seals and where we're going now with the seven trumpets. But you're going to notice some differences, too. Like with the four seals, 
They had the four riders, the four horsemen of the apocalypse that came to bring down the judgment. But with the four trumpets, there's no middlemen involved, right? With the fifth seal, there was a focus on the suffering of God's people, the martyrs. With the fifth trumpet, we're going to see that there's a focus on the suffering of unbelievers, those who refuse to repent. So what's this deal with the number seven? How are we to understand it? How are we to understand the relationship between the seven seals and the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath? Some people will take the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and and they'll look at it as, as events that happen consecutively, right? That the one happens after the next or after the previous. And so they see it as like the seven seals happen, and then the seven trumpets, and then after that, it finishes off with the seven bolts. Now, here's how I think we should understand it. And just to be clear, you have the right to disagree and be wrong, but as we've mentioned before, as we've mentioned before, the number seven is John's numeric symbol for completeness and for wholeness. In other words, each series of judgments completes God's judgments on the unrighteous of the world. All right? You, you, You tracking with that? So like each series of judgments, each series of seven judgments is the completion, the, the whole fullness of God's judgment on the unrighteous in the world. That's the parallels that we're looking at here. That's why uh, as, we, as the, these chapters feel like recycled statements when we go from the seals to the trumpets and then to the bulls. But while we see parallels on the one hand, we also clearly see movement. We also clearly see advancement. For example, with each group of seven, the judgments, if you pay attention, they get more severe. They get more gnarly. They get more heavy. Their weight is felt more and more as we go down the line. In fact, at the end of the seven bowls, there is an additional seven thunders that are just mentioned but never expanded on. And so, which is it? Is it? Are we to look at these as like parallels, or are we to look at this as like advancing? And, and, and I think the answer is both. <clears throat> the point is, the point is, you can't draw this on a chart. You can't draw this on some eschatology chart. Like, how do you draw a shape and timeline and diagram that shows both parallels? but also cycles and shows this growing intensity, this growing advancement, this moving forward. Like, you can't. You can't draw that. It's not picturable. Now, do these events happen in history? Yes, they do. Are they happening now? Yes, they are. Will some of them happen in the future? Yes, that's also true. The visions tell us what Jesus did, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do, all from the perspective of heaven, where a day is like a thousand years. And it's not strictly historical. You might be thinking, 
man, this is like something I've never read before. It just doesn't make sense. This, this isn't like anything that I've ever seen or read before. And, and, and exactly, that's the point. That's the point. That's how apocalyptic literature is supposed to work. These chapters are not a historical timeline. They're more like a musical score where you've got different clefts that layer one on the other. It's a piece of art. And each new cycle and variation repeats the previous one but adds more intensity moving forward to this great crescendo. The way that this piece of apocalyptic literature reads is supposed to make you feel like you're accelerating faster and faster towards the conclusion, resolution, towards a crescendo. And so you might be asking, like, man, we're going to talk about judgment again? Like, weren't, weren't those sealed judgments enough? Like, why do we need trumpet judgments now? I think the answer is, the point is to tell us that judgment is real. And it's coming. It's coming down the tracks. It's coming and it's continuing without interruption. I mentioned last week, I mentioned this last week, that I, I know the judgment of God, just as a concept, is not always an easy concept to ponder or wrestle with. But when received rightly, it can be good news to us. It could be good news to us because it tells us that God cares about justice. He cares about good prevailing. He cares about evil, sin, and death being put to a stop. And that's the message that these early Christians needed to hear. The fact that God will judge the world through Jesus Christ wasn't just this shocking reality, but it was good news to them. It was good news to embrace. They not only received that good news, they celebrated it. They celebrated it because it supplied them with the hope that God would rescue them from the injustice. He would vindicate them from their persecution. The judgment of God is good news because it tells us that God will right every wrong, that every injustice will be judged perfectly before his court of law, that evil, sin, and death will not have the final say, and that in a world that is jacked up and broken and evil, it is good news that full and complete justice is coming. His name is Jesus. And it is a sweet thing. It's a beautiful thing to be hidden in him. So then the text transitions into the blowing of the trumpets, which we'll call point number two, the return of the plagues. <clears throat> the return of the plagues. Read verse seven with me. It says, the first angel blew his trumpet and there followed a hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Now, do you see that fraction, one-third, that gets repeated in this verse? 
It shows up actually eight times in the, the passage of Scripture talking about the seven trumpets. So in talking about seven trumpets, this fraction, one-third, shows up eight different times. And the significance of that fraction is to point us to the mercy of God. How does that do that? How does the fraction, one-third, point us to the mercy of God? It's because we see that judgment comes on one-third of the earth and does not come on two-thirds of it. Now, these fractions aren't to be taken literally, of course, you know, like with many other numbers in the book of Revelation. One-third is a symbol of mercy. As a fraction, it's a symbol of mercy that tells us that judgment is not total and complete with these seven trumpets. Total and complete judgment is coming, but it's not fully realized yet with these seven trumpets. And so if that's the case, then what is the purpose of the trumpets? Their purpose is to warn. The purpose of the trumpets is to warn. To warn the world of the coming total judgment. You see, in the Old Testament, trumpets were often used as a warning to God's judgment coming. We talked about that a little bit last week, if you remember. It's a common theme that was first established in the Old Testament. Like just like the plagues that came to Egypt to warn Pharaoh, like, hey, you, you, you know, through the prophet Moses, you got to let my people go. Or judgment is coming. A plague's going to come. You're not gonna. You're not, you're gonna. You're gonna wish that you obeyed, right? So, so the, these plagues were warnings. The judgments of the seven trumpets, in a similar way, are warnings aimed against those who oppose God's kingdom. Those who oppose God's kingdom breaking into history. The point of a trumpet is to warn them. You see, with this first trumpet, hail and fire are mixed with blood, and a third of the earth has its vegetation burned. We remember this from the seventh plague of Egypt, where hail and lightning fell. Lightning is sometimes described as fire from the sky in the Bible. Hail and lightning fell, destroying flax and barley crops in Egypt, but the wheat and the spelt survived. So in a similar way, just the, in the, the judgments that God's enemies experience throughout history are laid upon them as a warning for them to repent, as a warning for them to let his people go, stop persecuting them, stop imprisoning them, stop killing them, stop taking away freedoms from them. And then in the second trumpet, verse 8, it says the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. Verse 9 says a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. So with this second trumpet, we see a mountain get thrown into the sea. And then a third of the sea is affected by that with all of its creatures and all the ships that are inside it. So like maritime commerce gets disrupted because of it. Now with this vision, 
that's given to John when he writes about this, his audience would be thinking about some recent current events that they would have gone through. See, volcanic activity was common in the Mediterranean area. And so this would have been a vivid picture for them. As a matter of fact, in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius famously erupted. You, you might remember, if you know your history, that the, 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 the little region called Pompeii was buried beneath the lava. The Bay of Naples was destroyed, along with lots of ships that were there and creatures uh, in the bay. And the, this, this talk about the third of the sea turning to blood reminds us of the first Egyptian plague where the waters of the Nile turn into blood. And so there's this picture that John's original audience would have understood, would have, would have been able to reference with this second trumpet. But I don't think John is just painting a poetic picture of volcanic activity. The imagery of a burning mountain actually shows up like all over the Old Testament, which, by the way, is how we get our guidelines on how to interpret the book of Revelation. Sometimes you got people from these camps that they want to take everything like consecutively and like literally to be, you know, like, no, there's going to be actual like seven seals and Jesus is going to appear as this lion in the land. Like he's actually going to look like that. Like, and this is going to, this is going to happen. This is like, it's all going to be consecutive. Like uh, sometimes people would, would look at uh, more symbolic interpretations as, as um, like they look at someone like me and be like, well, you're just making stuff up, right? When you say everything's a symbol and an allegory, that just makes, that just gives you the freedom to like say whatever you want about the passage of, of scripture that you want. But no, that's not actually how that works. The way that we get our guidelines on how to interpret the book of Revelation is from apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. So to those guys, I'd say, checkmate, right? You see, because in the Old Testament, mountains, we know from the Old Testament that mountains were used to talk about nations and kingdoms, all right? So Jeremiah uses this language but in, in Jeremiah 51. He uses this language to describe Israel's enemy, uh, uh, Israel's enemy. And so in, in Jeremiah 51, verse 25, it says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord. So here's the Lord, here's Yahweh speaking to something he describes as a destroying mountain. He says, I'm against you, destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags, uh, which is an old word for the, from the cliffs, and make you a burnt mountain. And then down in verse 64, the prophet interprets that verse and says, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster I am bringing upon her. So what we see is that, that this, this burnt mountain is a metaphor in Jeremiah 51 for uh, Babylon, which was Israel's great enemy. They were, Babylon was the quintessential enemy of God's people in the days of Jeremiah. 
It was a wicked kingdom that was judged by God. And so for the Christians that were hearing this in the first century, to hear this language about with the second trumpet about, um, you know, like a burnt mountain being thrown into the sea, like they were reminded, man, God is bigger than Babylon. God's bigger than Rome. He's bigger than even our most fearsome enemy. And those enemies will fall at his hands if this vision from John is true. Let's look at the next trumpet. Verse 10, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And so what we see is with this trumpet, a great star, which is nicknamed wormwood, falls from heaven, and a third of the rivers are poisoned by it. Now, this is obviously not a literal star, right? These actual stars are these gigantic balls of gas that are like billions the time of our planets, right? Like would absolutely, like a piece of a star would destroy our planet. And so, but this is, again, a, a metaphor being used here. The star was named Wormwood because of the effect that it would produce. It poisoned any water that it touched. Now this, this Wormwood is an herb that shows up all over the Old Testament but especially in the book of Jeremiah where God judges idolatrous Israel. He says he's going to uh, like infect their water with wormwood that they might be poisoned of it. That's, that's how he disciplines his people is by warning of that. And so this trumpet, it also reflects though the first plague on Egypt where the Nile was contaminated. So that not only did the fish die, but it also became undrinkable. So what we see is with each of these trumpets, like God is taking their land. He's taking the sea. He's taking away sources of nourishment like water. Like what is he doing? What is he doing? He's undermining where our enemies place their confidence. They think they can rule the land. God's going to take it away. They think they can rule the seas. God's going to take that away. He's going to take away nourishment from them. Verse 12, it says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. By the way, this, is, uh, this uh, passage... Um, First of all, I was not talking about daylight savings time. <laughs> that wasn't a thing back then. Um, but this is also one of the reasons that we know that the sevenfold judgments should not be taken chronologically. Because if you remember with the sixth seal, it says that the sun went dark. But here, with the fourth trumpet, we see it shining again. And with this trumpet... A third of the sun and the moon and the stars have their light darkened. Basically, the, just the, the regular rhythm of day and night gets disrupted. The point being is that nature is going berserk 
just like it did with the plagues in Egypt. First the earth, and food supplies are, are, are affected, then the sea and commerce is affected, then, then water, then light, getting closer and closer and closer to affecting humanity itself. warning. These trumpets are a warning. That's why it's fitting for us to close by considering the mercy of the king. And that's our third and final point, the mercy of the king. The mercy of the king, it says, verse 13, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so here you've got this angel crying out in this loud voice saying, woe, which is uh, kind of like this, another way of saying Repent. Like, woe is you. Repent. Those of you who dwell on the earth. And then he says, at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So he's basically saying, man, it's about to get real. You thought these four trumpets were gnarly. Like, just wait till you see what happens with these next three. Now, we, we won't go through those three just yet. We'll, we'll look at those next week. But this is his way of saying, look, things are about to get worse. Now, what does that statement have to do with God's mercy? What does that have to do with the mercy of the Lamb? Because we're reminded at this point that the world has not been completely destroyed. It will be soon. That day is coming. But it's not here yet. You see, when a seal was opened, if you remember when we went through the seven seals, the judgments came and affected a quarter of the earth. A quarter of the earth suffered. But when the trumpet sounds that knob gets increased to a third. When the seven bowls pour out, it says that everything gets damaged, gets turned to 11. Do you feel like just the, the acceleration in, the, in, the, in these passages of Scripture? You're supposed to feel that, feel the acceleration. That things are moving, they're moving forward, and they're moving faster and faster and faster towards the final end. But here's the good news. Yes, things are moving faster and faster to the end, but there's good news in the middle of that. The good news is that the world hasn't been completely destroyed yet. And look, here we are even 2,000 years after, 2,000 years, many centuries after this vision was first given to John and the world has still not been completely destroyed. What does that tell us? God is patient. He's patient in his mercy. He's patient not because he's, he's lazy in carrying out judgments, He's patient because he's rich in his mercy. 
Look at how the Apostle Peter described this in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, he describes these final days and he says, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Basically, they're going to mock the Christians saying, you know, you guys said Jesus is coming back. Where is he? And they're going to continue mocking, saying, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Basically, the scoffers are going to be like, where's your God? Verse 7, but the same word, the heavens and earth, that now exist, or but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Your God is patient. Patient, and he's rich in mercy. His heart longs for people to come to him, to return to him in repentance. And as a fourth angel blows that trumpet, and John hears an eagle crying, whoa, 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 repent, repent, repent. Let that be a reminder to us that as long as we're in the world, And as long as we're waiting for Jesus to return, we must be witnesses to that gospel of grace. Because his judgment is coming. It's accelerating. It's around the corner. It will come with fiery intensity. And when it does come, the ungodly and the unrepentant will be destroyed. And so we must be witnesses to the gospel until that day because God's heart is not that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so we pray for those around us who have not repented. We share the hope of the gospel with them. We plead for them before the throne room of God in prayer. And we make sure that our lives, our lives are reflecting the grace of repentance. so that the watching world might hear through us, whoa, 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 repent, 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 before that final trumpet sounds. 
Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.